Hi, welcome to Shift. It's PwC Canada's podcast series, and we're digging into key digital trends and topics that can make your business transformation a reality. I'm your host, John Finkelstein, and I'm also the creative director of PwC Canada. Welcome to another episode of Shift. We are in sunny Vancouver. We've taken it on the road. Thanks for joining. Very exciting podcast today. We are getting into some significant innovation today and what it takes to be innovative in public sector. I am here with Shannon Salter, chair of the Civil Resolution Tribunal. Unbelievable. I can't wait to talk about what you're doing because it's super exciting. Welcome to Shift. Thanks very much, John. I'm happy to be here. And congratulations for winning V2R in the accelerator category. That is no small feat. We are thrilled on behalf of our entire team. We are so excited. What was the reaction when you found out? I was just uh, so excited and I couldn't wait to be able to share it with my team. They were blown away and very, very excited as well. Tell us a little bit about your entry, what it is. What is the um, Civil Resolution Tribunal? So the Civil Resolution Tribunal is an administrative tribunal, and there are many of those across Canada and 27 of them in BC. Administrative tribunals are kind of like courts in the sense that they create binding decisions on different aspects of people's lives, different disputes. The thing that makes the Civil Resolution Tribunal different is that it's the first online tribunal in Canada, and as far as we knew, it was the first one in the world that was publicly integrated into the justice system. I want to repeat that again because in case people didn't quite catch that. The first online tribunal in Canada, and maybe the world. Think about that for a second. That's huge. It's exciting to, to have seen it go from this idea, this piece of legislation, to a reality. We've now accepted close to 6,000 cases. And uh, it's exciting, too, because we get inquiries every week from different jurisdictions around the world that are closely tracking what we're doing and starting their own projects. So it's kind of an idea whose time has come. Unbelievable. So where did the idea come from? I have to be clear, it wasn't my brainchild. It was the brainchild of a very small, dedicated team within the Ministry of Justice in British Columbia uh, called the Dispute Resolution Office. And they shepherded through the Civil Resolution Tribunal Act, so a piece of legislation back in 2012. And they did it at a time when online dispute resolution was really very theoretical. There were no examples to follow. And so they took a real risk there. Uh, I was appointed in 2014, and that's when we were really ready to start implementing. Um, and now we've got a team of 43 full-time uh, staff members, and we've been resolving disputes for two years. Unbelievable. What was the biggest uh, hurdle, do you think, to go from this kind of theory, legislation, to making it a reality? Well, there are definitely a lot of challenges along the way. We were, we were both blessed and cursed with this blank slate. There wasn't really a path to follow. And so we had to look at what evidence was out there, what best practices were out there, what research was saying, and try and make the best research-based decisions we could along the way. The hardest part by far was change management in the legal community. Um, the legal community is very risk adverse, it's very change adverse, that's the nature of the legal profession. And so winning hearts and minds was uh, really probably the most challenging part and the biggest part of my job for the first couple of years after I was appointed. I love the fact that you've taken um, basically a bricks and mortar, I need, I have a, I have a dispute, whether it's, you know, a condo or small claims or whatever, so it's under 5,000. Normally I have to wait for a court date. Uh, normally, or in the old world before this, I would have to show up at court. Now you've taken it online. So take me through the steps a little bit about how this works for, for a person, how this works for 
BC citizens. Sure. And probably a good starting point is to explain what it is we have jurisdiction over. Awesome, yeah, please. So we have jurisdiction over condominium disputes of any amount, so it can be hundreds of thousands of dollars. And these are ordinary neighbor disputes. A big chunk of our population in British Columbia either owns a condo or rents a condo. And until we opened our doors, people had to go to the BC Supreme Court, which was very expensive and time consuming and complicated. And as a result, they just didn't. And so they tended to just have these festering disputes that would chip away at these communities. So we started resolving those disputes in 2016, and then a year later we were given jurisdiction over small claims disputes $5,000 and under, and then just a couple of months ago the government passed legislation to give us jurisdiction next year over uh, most minor motor vehicle accident disputes as well, which is going to be a massive step forward. So anybody who has uh, those kinds of claims can go to our website at civilresolutionbc.ca, and the first step is to get more information about their issue. And this is really to help them resolve their dispute without even having to file a claim with our tribunal. Uh, they go through something called the Solution Explorer, which is free and anonymous, and it gives people pretty bite-sized bits of plain language legal information, as well as tools like template letters that they can use to resolve the dispute themselves. And it comes from basically asking people questions about their dispute and then giving them uh, answers based on those questions. So it's called an expert system. It's a very basic form of artificial intelligence. But we want people to um, have some good information when they come into the process, uh, to even the playing field between more sophisticated and less sophisticated parties, but also ideally helping them resolve their disputes so that they don't even need to come to us. I love the fact that you can avoid filing a claim just by working through what it is, what is it you want to do. Exactly. Um, can you solve this yourself? Here are some tools to try and do it yourself as opposed to feeling the need to actually file something. That's right, and it's really a preventative step. Mm -hmm. uh, we know it's best for people in terms of their financial, physical, and mental health not to have a lingering claim in the justice system. Yeah. And, But as a society, we're not really taught how to resolve disputes very well. We have a hard time having difficult conversations with neighbors. We don't know how to write letters that sound formal or right. um, may have some legal language. So we're really trying to give people those tools, and we think that that even without the tribunal would help strengthen yeah. civil society. What kind of things on the condo side are people filing? Is it, is it um, tenant or owner to owner or is it your stereo is too loud or your dog is barking? Or? It's really all of the above. Most disputes are between condominium boards and owners, but it can also be disputes between owners over noise or pets or other things like that. It's complicated because these are really little neighborhoods where people have to share resources, agree on priorities like a budget, paint color for the hallway, um, how loud is too loud. And so these uh, disputes are really varied, but they tend to be you know, the, the kind of irritations that people have when they live together in close quarters. Uh, unbelievable. I love the fact that you, you talk about some artificial intelligence. So where did that come from? Tell, tell us more about that, because that's, I mean, having an online tool where people can go and get binding decisions, amazing. And then you're layering on some really advanced tech on top of that. Yeah, so the, the uh, idea of an expert system has been around for quite a long time, and we were really lucky to have Darren Thompson with the Ministry of Justice uh, working on this, and he did a master's on, in dispute resolution on expert systems, uh, and is probably one of the leading ODR experts in Canada. Uh, so we had a lot of expertise to draw on, but the idea is that most people don't want to read 20 pages on condo law. They want a very specific answer to their very specific problem, which you can give them if you ask them questions first and then give them plain language uh, tools. So 
everything that we write for the tribunal, whether it's a decision at the end or the Solution Explorer content at the front end, is meant to be written at about a grade six reading level so that it's really simple and easy to use for people. Huh. That's why it resonated with me. But you know, when I watched the Solution Explorer video, I was really impressed because governments tend to talk to people like they're talking to other governments or I don't know where the language come from. I mean, for me, I, I have my master's in English and so um, as a writer, I always find it really um, disconcerting, if you will, when I'm looking at stuff, I don't understand what you're talking about. Why don't you talk to me like a person? Right, and if you can't understand it, uh, imagine how somebody feels who doesn't speak English as a first language right. or didn't finish high school, for example. So evidence tells us you have to direct information at about a grade six reading level to make it understandable. And I bet they're coming to the website under duress a little bit, right? They're, they have a problem. They have, whether it's festering or it's new, they're, they're, um, they're vulnerable probably and feeling a lot of stress. And then to go to a resource that uh, talks up to me, that's even worse. I don't even know what to do, uh, let alone I don't understand what you're saying. So awesome. I was really impressed with how um, sympathetic and approachable the language was. I'm glad to hear you say that. We, we often get people commenting that it doesn't look like a typical court or tribunal website, which I take as a compliment it because, yeah. uh, you know, court, as you point out, a lot of court websites, but also forms and information are designed without any user testing. So a lot of uh, what we've been able to achieve in terms of making it clear is by actually going out and validating with the people who use it, whether they understand what's being asked of them, um, how we can make it better. And then we survey people after they've been through the process to ask them similar questions. And we use that information to, to improve as well. It's a really important step, and hopefully people who are listening will take that seriously. Because one of the things, and so you, you, you applied what sounds like a more agile approach? We have used agile, both for the technology development. And the great thing about agile is that built in there are breaks that you can use to go out and validate your assumptions. So we've developed a pretty uh, stringent methodology for user testing, which we use not just for the technology, but also for our forms, our fee structure, our business processes. Yeah, that's so important because you can have the most incredible, insightful solution or technology or product based on a relevant human need, and then you can totally botch it with the experience. So for me, the takeaway for people listening is like, even when you have a great idea, you have to make sure you're designing it for the people you're using it for. Other? Absolutely. And I think in a public uh, sector context, that can be more challenging. I think there can be uh, a perception that it's risky to use your test or that it might be embarrassing. And our view is always that you can either have these small failures along the way and allow yourself to course correct, keep your ego in check, uh, keep the team really focused on user need, or you can have a giant failure at the end. And so uh, we've really adopted that Silicon Valley approach of fail fast, fail off, and fail forward. And it's worked out really well for us. One of the sort of catchphrases we have around the tribunal is that we collect all this feedback through the website and um, through, through our frontline staff, and we refer to those collections of feedback as, as treasure troves, which I think really sort of shows that we, we're not sensitive to criticism. We view it as an exciting opportunity that is valuable, and it'll, it's the key to, to improving. Failure is not an option. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes. Um, exactly, in a calculated, thoughtful way. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about change management as being kind of like one of the driving forces around adoption. Uh, tell me, how did you do it? What did you do? Uh, who was it with? How, were, how did you fail and how did you improve? So my background is as a lawyer. And then I've also sat as a tribunal member, uh, 
um, as a decision maker in tribunals, but I had no experience or training in change management. And it was one of the things that surprised me when I was appointed, how much change management there was to do, because I realized that unless we could bring along stakeholders, that the project was not going to be successful. But I also had a very wide definition of who our stakeholders were, and they weren't just lawyers. It was also, the most importantly, the public generally, but also maybe even more importantly than that, community legal advocates who represent vulnerable people in our society. Um, they're the front lines, and they know how badly the legal system can work sometimes um, for people who have, have these barriers. So my view was that without any knowledge or expertise in the area was that the best thing to do was to, to talk to everybody I could and listen as much as I could. And I think there tends to be a bit of a fight or flight response sometimes with projects like this where particularly any institutional or, or government entity that's trying to introduce a project will either get very defensive and not really listen or just not engage at all, sort of this flight mechanism. And, and my view was that uh, there was a better way, and the better way was to invite yourself into somebody's living room, <laughs> metaphorically, uh, for a cup of tea and just talk, and, and find the common ground where you can. So I, I started with community advocates and asked them what things they would like to see, uh, given the blank slate that we had. And the, a lot of their feedback was, um, you know, they weren't asking for million-dollar things. They were asking for absolutely doable um, things like can we have staff that are culturally competent can we have a direct line to somebody who has authority if their client is falling through the cracks uh, things that we've implemented that were actually not very expensive or difficult to do at all so I think um, I think a lot of it is about being honest and um, and being willing to listen uh, being candid not shying away from difficult questions but it also just takes a lot of time and so once people kind of got on board with it and kind of really understood the impact this can have for citizens, did they kind of like stand up and applaud kind of thing? There, there was always a lot of support among members of the public uh, when they became aware of it. And, and we were lucky because the condominium community was very engaged and they are very knowledgeable and well-informed. So we would have community meetings where two or 300 people would show up on a Tuesday night. And so that was great, a lot of engagement there. Um, I think with lawyers, even though I have talked about the change resistance and I've been hard on them, I think with them too, when you explain how this is going to improve access to justice, they did largely get on board. And I think that's because lawyers, for the most part, are very committed to access to justice. And they are quite idealistic in a lot of ways, but they need to be persuaded. That's great. Yeah, access is huge. I'm, I'm curious about um, the vulnerable uh, and access. So for people who are, um, you know, maybe less tech savvy, for people who are vulnerable uh, or don't have access to, to tech, um, how, how are you serving them still? Yeah, that, that's, I, I spend a lot of my time um, really focusing my energies on people who would have these issues or may have these issues. I mean, the vast majority of people are fine. You put a tablet or a smartphone in front of them and, they, and you make the technology intuitive and they know what to do and they're off to the races. We thought there would be about 5 or 10% of people who would not use the online technology based on our research. One thing that surprised us is that now out of almost 6,000 disputes, which by definition have at least one person on each side, we've only had about 10 people ask not to use email, which is the default communication method. Huh. Despite that, you're right, people can engage in a variety of different ways. So uh, most 90, over 99% of people use the online technology, but we also have mail-based services, uh, telephone, fax, 
in in person help at 62 service point, uh, points basically around the province. And I, I saw you laugh when you when I mentioned facts. Facts is an is the real F word. <laughs> we don't facts, like facts. As, I want that on a t-shirt. Them. Facts is an F word. Is the not F-word. failure. Failure is not no. an F word for us, no. but but facts is. Uh, but nonetheless, we do accept faxes. And, and what surprised us is just the massive demand for online services. So we, we get about four paper forms a month out of about 500 disputes a month. And what that's telling me is that people would rather sit down with a friend or family member, fill out a really simple form. They'd rather do that than even go to the post office and line up for a stamp, oh, yeah. which is a pretty good validation of, of well-designed online technology. Yeah. When thinking about uh, change management or resisting adoption, it's like just because we're offering an online service or an online channel does not negate other channels. It's incremental. And I think that's what a lot of people have to kind of get their heads around as well is that we're not necessarily shutting down other stuff. We're just opening more. We're giving more access. You'd be surprised how often I heard that argument before we opened that not 100% of people are online, therefore we should offer zero online services. It doesn't make sense logically or in any other way. Um, I think we do have a responsibility as a part of the public justice system to make sure that nobody is left behind. But you're right that multi-channel is the solution for that. Yeah, difficult is worth doing. That's one of my favorite lines. It's just like, yeah, it might be hard, but the end result is, is worth it. The Civil Resolution Tribunal is amazing for citizens. I, I, the access is incredible. What kind of impact has it had for, for staff, for people internally? We have an incredible team. And I think part of that is that, again, we had the blank slate. So I was lucky enough to be able to hire my second in charge, uh, Richard Rogers, and the, the key exec team. And then they, in turn, hired their own staff and the frontline staff. And it's, it's really remarkable. We do a lot of things to make sure our staff feel satisfied in their work. One is that about 80 to 90% of our staff work remotely, and that's allowed us to recruit some exceptional talent that just needs a bit of flexibility in their life. Uh, so that's been great. And then we're also really engaged in our, with our frontline staff. So these are the people who engage with the public, uh, either through the submissions that they send in or the telephone. And because most of the heavy lifting is done online, they're not doing sitting there doing data entry. Um, they tend to spend a lot of time on the phone with people who would otherwise slip through the cracks. So they're doing higher value work. And we also, because we're so new, really rely on them for their frontline experience. So they're the most valuable source of what's actually going on for the public and the tribunal. They have their own sort of agile systems that they've developed, including a success wall. They have a huddle board and a success wall when they identify a problem. Um, they can escalate it to me and the executive team really, really quickly. Uh, the exec team meets every week or two to review change requests from staff or th- through the public, through the website, and we triage those changes and implement them in a really short cycle. So they're not living, the frontline staff are not living with annoying things for a long period of time. I love that. One of the things that um, I think is really important for people thinking about innovation, especially in public sector, is scale. And so you've talked about condo disputes. You've talked about small claims up to 5,000. You mentioned, hey, we're, we're bringing in um, sort of auto, automobile disputes. Is amazing. So obviously there's some traction. There's some scale. Where do you see this going? I and mean, how, how big can it get? 
Uh, do you see it going from BC across Canada? I mean, yeah, I, I think one of the interesting things about online dispute resolution and one of the interesting things for us being a leader in this area is that we just don't know what the limits are yet. I think it was very smart for the provincial government to have started with condominium disputes and then small claims disputes because while these are important issues for the people who have them, they're not life or death issues. You know, nobody's going to jail or losing their kids because of these kinds of issues. And so it's a perfect area to carefully, thoughtfully, incrementally um, experiment and try something new and figure out what works. And so we've gotten pretty good at implementing new areas of jurisdiction and scaling up. Um, condo disputes are about five or 600 a year. Small claims are about five to 6,000 a year. And we know that there will be a multiple of that for motor vehicle disputes as well. I think there's huge potential here for other areas of law too. And the one that comes to mind um, most readily is family law. If you think about family law, uh, people going to court uh, spend a huge amount of time and money through a really adversarial process, and it's emotionally devastating, and the tools that the court system have are pretty limited. So bringing the justice system to families who are going through separation and divorce, allowing them to engage on their time, uh, doing it as collaboratively and consensually as possible, uh, might yield a kinder, gentler, more humane process that's easier on kids, that's easier on the pocketbook, and that's easier on the on the participants through a really difficult time in their lives. Amazing. I love the idea of it being more, more humane's not really the word, but more gentle, not only on people's kind of emotional state, but financially. You know, Vancouver is one of the leading smart cities in the world. It's amazing that such a, a fundamental shift in the justice system is happening here. What is it about BC that is driving these, in, these innovations? You know, I'd, I'd really be speculating here, but I think it might have something to do with the fact that we're a relatively young province. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's certainly traditions, but they're maybe a little less entrenched than they are in other parts of, of Canada or maybe even other parts of the world. It certainly does help to have a really strong tech sector and normalizing the idea of innovation um, in the private sector, I think, no, naturally bleeds into the public sector. But I do think a lot of this is personality driven. And I see this in other jurisdictions trying to innovate around the world too, that a lot seems to change on just having, or turn on having the right people in the right places at the right time. So again, I, I tip my hat again to this innovative group within the Ministry of Justice, which was really um, before its time in terms of having some of these ideas. And they just had an incredibly diverse, multidisciplinary group of people who drove this forward. And, uh, and we sort of picked up the ball and kept it going as well. So it's a curious, it's a very fascinating question. How much uh, is situational? How much is contextual? Um, and I don't know, I'm not really sure how to apportion that, but I do agree Someone with you that write Vancouver a paper is special. On it eventually. Yes, after you have enough data, hopefully. Right? It's like, what is it about? Something in the water. Something, no. I was going to say that. You know, <laughs> typically in innovation, you know, it's not, a what hit, it's not a one hit wonder, right? How do you stay ahead of the game and continue to improve? Um, especially considering, you know, your leading position in the industry. You don't want to rest on your laurels. You want to, you've made a splash. How do you continue? I think it, it, in part, the answer for us is a culture of continuous improvement. And that involves looking, you know, sticking our head up every now and again and watching what's happening in the world. Um, and then internally, constantly reevaluating, constantly shifting, constantly adjusting, I think does keep us ahead of the game and closely tied to what it is people want and need. And there's a couple of exciting areas that we're looking at, I think, moving forward. One is really harnessing the power of all the data we're 
able to collect and looking at data analytics to improve our processes. We, we've already done this uh, in a lot of ways, but we're continuing to refine that. I love the idea, even just fundamentally about self-serve. It's so intrinsic into how we live our lives now. I go to Amazon, I go to Apple, I do all these things, I go to Craigslist or whatever. I'm in the driver's seat as the sort of quote unquote consumer. And then I get to government and I hit a wall. Or I used to hit a wall. How, how, do, you, how do you deliver you know, services to Canadians through digital? They want it, they need it, and as government, we need them to need it. Right. Because we spend an inordinate amount of time, resources, money, serving people face to face when it doesn't need to be. And they don't want they to want do it. that, and you're right that taxpayers don't want to pay for the government to do that. I, I, I think that's right. Um, you know, nothing about this is particularly surprising to members of the public. When you talk to them, they're like, yeah. yeah, why isn't it that way already? There's no there's no shock or, or surprise. There's just a general consensus that it's a good idea and they give it a big thumbs up. Um, so they're not the sticking point there. But the challenge, of course, is to design uh, technology and processes for them that match their expectations. So one of the key takeaways was that the more we could make the technology look like things people were already doing online, the easier it was going to be for them to use, the less anxiety it was going to cause them, the more they were likely to jump in with both feet. Yeah. So. You talked about our website, but we, we know from some of the research we commissioned that 92% uh, of people in BC are online every day. The things they're doing are what we're all doing. They're buying stuff, they're Googling stuff, they're using social media, they're emailing and they're texting. Yep. And so the negotiation platform looks like a chat room. Um, the solution explorer looks like buying things. It's radio buttons and yep. clicking things. Uh, and, it, and the form even looks like buying something from Amazon or Walmart. So I, I agree with you. It's, again, a design challenge. But uh, it's not the public that is, I think, throwing obstacles in the way for, for changing the way that the justice system works. What advice would you have for, um, for people, companies, about V2R and potentially applying for V2R in 2019? Well, my, my advice to everybody for everything is always to apply for everything. It was a relatively straightforward application process and uh, an incredible group of nominees. But I, I think there's so much talent uh, that goes unrecognized in these incredible projects that don't go, that go unrecognized as well. Uh, so I guess my advice would be simple. Go for it. That's awesome. So that's it for today's podcast. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. Uh, Shannon, thank you so much for sharing uh, the story about uh, the tribunal. I really do think that you've, you've set the bar for other people. And I think, you know, in, in sort of typical, like you said, lawyer uh, justice system, there's a precedent now. And I think if you guys can show that it can be done, there's so many other opportunities for other organizations to take that online, uh, which is great. Which is, I love. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us. I think it's super inspiring and hopefully people listening got lots out of it. Stay tuned for more upcoming episodes in our innovation series featuring other V2R winners. That's it for now. So see you next time. Thanks very much, John. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shift. You can get more details at pwc.com slash CA slash shift. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe to our podcast series. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, or your preferred podcast platform. Just so you know, this podcast has been prepared by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP, an Ontario limited liability partnership for general guidance on matters of interest only and does not constitute professional advice. Until next time.